Some of these trade-offs that we're exploring or the decisions around sustainability, some of them must bite. Do we need to make trade-offs in terms of what we invest in tomorrow versus what we invest in the next day? You do. But if you think about it, if those trade-offs are one in derogation of the other, then you've got a problem. Hello and welcome to Trade-Offs, a new podcast series from Fidelity International about the complex choices business leaders face to make their companies fit for a more sustainable future. I'm Ned Salter, Global Head of Investment Research at Fidelity International, and the voice you heard at the start was Brian Moynihan, Chief Executive of financial giant Bank of America. I've just come out of the company's office in a very chilly downtown Boston where I interviewed Mr. Moynihan about balancing the simultaneous demands of thousands of stakeholders, as well as the challenges he faces financing the businesses and homes in a world of transition. In this series, I'm talking to CEOs in the most critical sectors to find out what they're thinking when it comes to the thorny decisions they face around ESG. At Fidelity, we invest other people's money in companies all over the world, and we spend hundreds of hours every week doing due diligence and talking to executives about the way they run their businesses. These are by necessity nuanced, sometimes difficult conversations. And when it comes to issues of sustainability, there's often no clear right answer. Every decision requires some kind of trade-off. Want to shut a lithium mine? What about the batteries for your smartphone or your electric car? Want to cut the red tape to build renewable energy plants? What about the impact on local communities? How are these trade-offs being addressed by the people in power? What do their decisions mean for the sectors in question? And why should investors be thinking about them? I've interviewed business leaders from some of the world's biggest companies to find out. It's been said that banks are the lifeblood of an economy, and when economies find themselves in peril or in flux, it's the banks that governments often turn to for support. Brian Moynihan has been the CEO of Bank of America for 12 years, and you can hear that full interview on the Fidelity Answers podcast feed or check for a link in the show notes. But today we're going to listen to some of the highlights and go over what was said with two of Fidelity's investment team, senior cross-asset financials analyst Lee Sotos and portfolio manager Rosanna Bercheri. Welcome. Thank Thank you. you. Thank you, Ned. Lee, can you set the scene? Where does Bank of America find itself in 2023 in terms of its position in the industry and its approach to sustainability? Well, the macro environment remains complicated. We do see Bank of America as one of the better positioned banks in the United States. The company has strong competitive advantages, an enviable deposit base. Uh, It's well diversified with the scale to continue to reinvest in the company. Um, In addition, you know, we do see it as, as a company that's had a history of solid execution. I think, interestingly, on a sustainability standpoint, B of A, we view as a leader um, in developing disclosure and risk management uh, measurement techniques. We've actually leveraged some of their disclosures in our own assessment of bank portfolios for climate risk. Rosanna, you know, Lee's given us the perspective from from his view as as a research analyst. How do you think about Bank of America uh, from the perspective of a portfolio manager? 
Well, as a portfolio manager, above all, managing a, a fund that is investing in U.S. equities, I mean, if you really want to get exposure to the U.S. economy to, and to the U.S. GDP growth, you know, one of the best ways, of course, is, is to invest in, in banks. Uh, and Bank of America is clearly one of the best positions because uh, it really covers all 50 states, uh, is a truly retail and commercial bank. More than 90% of their business comes really from retail and commercial banking, so you're not uh, uh, linked to the ups and downs of the trading and investment banking. Lee mentioned that uh, Bank of America had developed some industry-leading tools that we as, as a firm now apply across a lot of bank uh, analysis that we perform. Um, how does Bank of America's sustainability initiatives make you feel about the company as, a, as an investment? Better on the margin? Uh, better on the margin in the sense that, you know, it's, it's quite, um, it's not really a well-defined still way of doing business and, and, and to report. So we really welcome as an investor initiatives like the one of Bank of America to really being at the lead and, and try uh, and put, uh, put, put down a sort of a framework of how to disclose a certain things. It makes me feel much more comfortable that at least they are trying and the fact that other banks then they are following and using their framework in terms of reporting or at least getting inspiration. Lee, if Bank of America is one of the leading banks in the field of sustainability, do you incorporate a premium when thinking about valuation from an analytical perspective? The way I think about it is maybe not a premium, but you do attribute um, some advantages in risk management because you know all forms of risk need to be priced into whether it's lending or capital markets. And so just knowing that the sophistication that they're applying uh, as far as climate goes to their various businesses, I mean, it, it does give them, you know, a bit of maybe a halo effect. Okay, so let's come back. I'm sure we'll come back in the conversation to the pricing of risk, uh, given the size of this bank. But in the meantime, let's have a listen to some of the interview. And I want to play you a clip from early on in my conversation with Mr. Moynihan, where he digs into what a trade-off means for him and the company he runs. A lot of these decisions that you need to make as a CEO, uh, you know, reflecting the needs of, of, of community are difficult and no single choice can, can keep everyone happy. You find yourself at the nexus of customers and regulators and shareholders and politicians and employees, of course, and the list goes on. But some of these trade-offs that we're exploring or the decisions around sustainability, some of them must Bite. You may call these, you know, it is, it's a balancing act. But what's been the most difficult for Bank of America to balance? We believe in profits and purpose, not, and that's called the genius of the end. And Jim Collins, a great business, wrote, wrote about it in 1996, I think it was. Not the tyranny of the or, which you profits or purpose, and you drive yourself crazy trying to do one or the other. So we believe you can do both. And so do we need to make trade-offs in terms of what we invest in tomorrow versus what we invest in the next day? You do. But if you think about it, if those trade-offs are one in derogation of the other, then you've got a problem. If they're to promote both and it's just a prioritization, you know, then it's fine because you can't do things that are against the interest of your broader stakeholders or else the company over time is going to have a problem. These are not new concepts. We had the Sustainable Development Goals, the SDGs. We now have stakeholder capitalism metrics that we dealt to say this is what stakeholder capitalism is. So do we make trade-offs? The answer is, is I call it balance. 
we have a way we run our company called Responsible Growth. And, and so in order for the growth to stick to your ribs, in order for the activities to stay with you, in order for clients to be loyal across time, it's balancing as opposed to trade-offs. We make prioritization decisions. You know, some teammate wants to invest in this and we don't think it's right. It has nothing to do with the trade-off. It has to do with that's not the priority of the moment. So the trade-off is a false choice, we say, between profits and purpose. You've got to do both because then, then they play off each other and they build on each other and you can keep doing them across time. Mr. Moynihan says a trade-off is a balance. That's about prioritization, choosing one option over another, arguably the core of a CEO's job. As the voices of all stakeholders have become more important, that decision-making process has become arguably more challenging, and you've got to keep a lot of people happy. So, Lee, where has this been particularly relevant to Bank of America? I I think if you look back to the financial crisis, uh, Bank of America had a tremendous amount of restructuring to do. And since then, they've become a much more efficient, cohesive uh, organization. Certainly since the financial crisis, the regulatory bodies have become much more important. So as, as, you know, kind of an elevated constituent In, in that way, risk management has also become much more important. So you see things like leverage loans largely leaving the banking industry. You see the industry trying to develop standards on climate change. And you see the industry, you know, you see the big banks actually developing tools for the rest of the industry to use on cybersecurity. So I, I think that that would be the constituent um, that I look at from, from a, uh, an analyst standpoint. And Rosanna, Mr. Moynihan says in his comments that a trade-off is a false choice between profits and purpose. Uh, when it comes to sustainability, don't CEOs now face competing purposes on both sides of that equation? So let's uh, separate two things, because personally, I actually agree with what Brian is saying. It's a, it's a false choice. A bank is, is in the business of taking risk. And I quite like to think that uh, the ESG actually give you better understanding of the risk that uh, that you are taking. So for a bank, actually incorporating ESG and, and so all the purposes that he's talking about is actually a better way to value an investment. And when you talk about value and investment, you always have to think about the risk and the reward. And the ESG is part of this, uh, of this analysis. Now, having said that, is is, is quite a delicate uh, situation right now. And of course, there are a lot of conversation going on at the board level and uh, at various various companies. Recalling 2019, when uh, the CEO of JP Morgan sort of put out to the board the proposal to transform the company in a public uh, uh, benefit corporation. And the board went back, uh, got legal advice. And the lawyer said, no, I'm sorry, you know, the fiduciary duty of a board, of a bank is to um, work for the benefit of the stockholder. So the message was clear, stockholder comes come, comes forth. But the, the discussion is evolving, and I think it's a very robust and actually very good discussion that is happening at board and at Congress among the politician, politician level, because we have to redefine maybe what's the really the fiduciary duty of, uh, of, of a board. Um, and so I think we, we need to, to be open. I quite like an approach like the one of, uh, of Brian is very pragmatic. You, you can do both. And actually, I think it makes sense in the business of a bank 
to take uh, to take account of ESG. And and you know, if you are able to evaluate better the risk, um, taking into account also the ESG profit with follows. So, so you can you can achieve both. So as investors, we like anything that allows the corporates to make better decisions. Uh, I absolutely agree with that. Um, so I guess moving away from profit versus purpose, in a world of scarce capital, how do you encourage companies to think about purpose versus purpose? So in a world of scarce resources, for example, how do you think CEOs should think about climate tech versus social development housing? They can they can do both. At the end, it uh, it, it is a matter of uh, you know what is the counterparty risk, what is really the the risk of uh, of uh, of that investment. But you know you're mentioning things that are very clearly on on the E and S uh, kind of area. I mean this guy, and I'm sure is is finding himself in the position or shall I shall I actually give money to an oil company or a coal a coal mine or shall I actually listen to what uh, what my shareholders are are asking me with uh, their exclusion list as a portfolio manager I like a quite a pragmatic uh, approach we we know that it's going to take a long time capital is is scarce you know is uh, has to be priced also co- correctly and I prefer a bank like that one, like 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 Bank of America, that is able to say, well, you know, we can we can keep on giving capital because we need to to move investment slowly out, for example, of coal or of oil, but we still need to have the eating on during the winter. You cannot uh, let down uh, let down people, and at the same time, so, you know, push this company to try to move their capital allocation maybe to other renewable sources. Uh, and yes, allocate uh, capital maybe for social housing, uh, uh, better energy efficiency kind of, kind of housing. Speaking of exclusion lists and time horizons, you've given us a very nice segue into my conversation with Mr. Moynihan about what's referred to as a just transition, how to make the move fair to all. And on that topic, I posed a hypothetical trade-off to him. So when you talk about just transition, I'm thinking about uh, a a thermal coal or a coal-fired power plant, which many are keen to exclude or divest, which I guess taken to the extreme could leave communities without electricity or uh, communities without employment or job opportunities. So how do we strive, practically speaking, to make that transition fair um, and catch up markets that are in transition? So if you take coal-fired electricity, the question is, you want to reduce emissions, you're going to have to change that over time. The reality is it is the fundamental power. So it's got to be a holistic view of it. So fundamentally, we we got to be willing to pay a little bit more for that bicycle because we're going to have to pay for a little higher cost of power. So, you know, there has to be citizens have to understand this may cost more money. Uh, Companies have to understand it costs more money, et cetera. But we've got to do it in a way that doesn't cost so much money people reject it. So to divest doesn't do any good. If somebody owns a coal plant and sells it, if somebody owns shares in a company that owns a coal plant and they sell them, that, that's good for them. But the reality is the coal plant's still operating. So the question is, how do we take the coal plant over time and convert it? Well, first you can carbon capture storage on it. Then you can start to build uh, facilities that can replace it. And then it, they convert it to gas. And then gas to you know, ultimately take it out to hydrogen or, or maybe the plant. But that's a question of time. And so what you want to do is that's, that's when a just transition means it has to be a transition, but you also have to think about it as a business question, not as a philosophic question. Because if you just say divest, what will happen is all go into places in private who may not be as interested in this question as we are. 
Lee, what does he mean when he says that assets will go to private holders who won't be as interested in the question of a just transition? Well, I think what he's getting at is that the banks are more likely to take account of just transition in their funding decisions because the the relationships are relationship-based with their clients, where if they disengage you know, private sources of capital, alternative sources of capital, such as private equity, might take over and lead the funding. But those are often more transaction-based. So what is the link between private capital being less interested in sustainability? Is it regulatory oversight? Is it the asset owners within private equity versus public equity? What, what, how do you unpack that? I mean, I think it's a, a combination of both. Um, banks are heavily regulated. We know that. Um, there's tremendous oversight. But banks historically have had more of a relationship focused. When you look at alternative sources of capital, it really is transaction oriented, um, less regulated, um, and essentially just trying to generate returns on each transaction for its investors. Rosanna, whether it's consumers or companies, uh, Mr. Moynihan did say that we'll all have to be willing to pay a little bit more. Do you agree with the statement? Yes, I agree. And actually, I think that uh, politicians, and you know, it's not only in the U.S., but across the, the globe, have not yet told the truth to the population. I mean, it's all, it's all good to to want to have 100% renewable energy, but, you know, there is capital that has to go to build these things. And uh, if you want capital to go there, there has to be an, an attractive return. So price will have to be, uh, uh, to be higher. If you want to buy stuff that are going to be produced 100 kilometers from where you live, again, you know, we're going away from... Uh, um, competitive and comparative advantage go to back to the basic and price a price has to go to go up. So I think he has a, he has a good point in the fact that, that you know the consumer has to be uh, aware of the fact that they have to pay to pay more. Um, the, the thing is that in you know the, the transition has to be managed. I think he has a point in saying you know yes we we are under these uh, big lenses of you as a, as a as a stockholder about exclusion list and what are you doing with the capital uh, you shouldn't do that. Uh, but he's right you know the transition is is long. We need to have a roadmap. So. It's better to keep on lending, like he says, uh, capital to this coal mine and then steer them towards maybe use the asset in a different way, like carbon capture. Uh, and me as an investor, you know, when I'm looking at a company, I prefer not to just look at exclusion list and be blind. I prefer to have a roadmap of how we can use better the asset and, and earn actually a return on, on the capital uh, that is invested. Lee, if Rosanna and Mr. Moynihan are right and that the, the, the costs are going to go up marginally, what does that mean for Bank of America, either in the cost of the goods and services that it produces or in their cost of risk? And is that something you worry about as the analyst? And do you think the street is focused on it? Well, I think it's an interesting point in that costs can contribute to profits in, in certain companies and also you know, create some, some credit stresses in, in, in other types of companies. So Bank of America is 
you know, going to be at the center of a lot of that. They're some of the companies that they're lending to or providing financing for are going to benefit from, you know, various forms of, of price discovery where other firms might be harmed by it. And, you know, it gets back to some of the conversation we've had on risk management. They're going to have to assess where different parts of, of the economy are, different parts of their client base are, um, and figure out what's the best way to manage that financing. Let's hear some more on the just transition theme. So are there consequences of the just transition? And very supportive of your answer, and it makes a lot of sense to me. It's something that we think about at Fidelity. But does it mean that we have a slower pace of change? Does it mean that we carry higher financial burden in the system? Will it go fast enough or slow enough? There's going to be accounting for this at all times. The question is just to do something. And so one of the challenges is people are talking about something in 2050. So you can't ignore that it takes steps to get there. But also, you can't get wound up. You just want people to get going. And what's been unbelievable is the amount of net zero commitments by private sector companies, the net zero commitments by states, cities, countries, et cetera. It covers, you know, 4,000, 5,000 companies have a net zero commitment. 95% of GDP as a country level has a net zero commitment. Do they have exactly how they get to get there? No, but they have it. And then we, the people in the private sector, can sit there and figure it out because now we have a duration that somebody's doing something. You can build markets around carbon, carbon capture. You can build markets around carbon markets. You can build markets around the transition value. And it, but, that's, but that's how we solve these things. And then capitalism come in and drive it. And that's hard for people to understand because they want to say, you know, are we making progress? Is there some number I can count? And there'll be lots of people having debates about that. But none of that takes into account the amount of work I see go on in the private sector that isn't countable in all those uh, models, honestly. It just isn't countable. Lee, he says we have to think about a just transition as a business question. How does Bank of America approach that task practically in the way that it delivers financing to its customers? When you think of um, some of the various forms of financing that a Bank of America might provide, uh, there's an efficiency in capital markets, and, and you see that in green bonds, where there's standards, there's signposts that investors as well as Bank of America can assess uh, the different companies against. It gets a little more complicated with project financing or, in particular, operational financing, where a, a company might have an open line of credit, and it's rather difficult to assess where that capital is actually going. And um, for, for a company like Bank of America, they can look at project financing and, and maybe put some covenants around that. But, you know, when it comes to uh, something like operational financing, it certainly is more difficult. And has Bank of America or has the banking system in general on that, that latter part, you know, the operational financing and lines of credit, brought a more ESG sort of risk-oriented approach to those lending facilities? I'm not sure they can necessarily do it on a facility-by-facility facility standpoint, but they can certainly judge the, you know, the company itself um, and where they're likely to use that financing. So um, you can earmark project financing in one way, uh, and they can make one assessment. For something as open-ended as a line of credit, it certainly is more difficult, but they are assessing the company as a whole. 
All right, so the analysis happens at the issuer level. That makes sense. I'm telling you that the private sector will lead this, the private sector will drive it. And their commitments to a transition end up in the big just transition for everybody. And they'll drive the activity because at the end of the day, that's a perpetual machine. It, it just goes on forever because it's demand. It's fundamental demand for services and change. The financial heavy lifting must be done by the private sector, says Moynihan. It's capitalism that will ultimately be the engine of transition. Here's another clip on that where I ask him to outline the division of responsibility between public and private enterprise. You made a compelling case for the requirement uh, that uh, the private sector play in funding the transition, and a lot of it being demand-driven, I think, is is one of the most compelling cases. And it's, and in a lot of ways, as you've described, it's the, the core business of Bank of America, and, and that's sort of neatly aligned. Um, but the extent to which the narrative says private sector must step in where governments have failed, yeah. is there merit in that? Well, I come at it more sort of mathematical. If you if you If you said... You know, what is the definition of long-term? You'd say the SDGs, the world's 197 countries or 195 said this is what sustainable development means. It's like we don't have to go find a definition. They said it, right? They say, what's the cost of putting those in and you know, making the progress that's required? Six trillion a year, they say. Okay, that's where is that going to come from? That goes back to the charity, trillion and a quarter a year. It's doing a lot of other things, which are pretty important, but okay, that doesn't make it. The governments don't have the money. And so then the private sector is going to have to step in. And so we and other financial institutions have similar demand cycles driven by clients doing stuff to make progress on the SDGs. And that's where the money really come from. Is it stepping in where government is? No, because government can trigger activity. So when, we, when I spoke to the G7 and the G20 uh, in the last year with, with the Sustainable Markets Initiative with King Charles, we went and talked to them. We said we need a price on carbon. You know, you need some mandates. Uh, the airline industry ended up de- developing a 30% sustainable aviation fuel mandate. We, we said, once you put this in, and it finally made it into the communique because those can create markets around. That allows the private sector to go. And then you need some purchasing. Government purchasing power is a strong purchase power, right? If they buy hydrogen trucks for the post office or electric, that changes the ability of the private sector to come in and have a supply chain into that. And then you need, you know, then you need permitting. You know, the, the whole debate in the U.S. about permitting and worldwide is the same question is, okay, we all agree we're going to do this, but we're going to put you through an eight-year process to get the permit to build. You pick whatever you need to do. Those are things. And so the government can, with their money, they can, and their tax advantage stuff, they can catalyze activity. With their mandates, they can help. But the, they really don't need to give cash out. What they need is enable. And I think that's where the, uh, the interesting thing, taking the political risk away or some of the other risks. And that's you're hearing Secretary Yellen in the United States talk about that. You've heard the, you know, President Macron talk about it. You heard it came out of COP27. Those things are out there. So, so I, I would never say we're replacing the government's what we're doing is a practical thing that the governments only have the money the taxpayers give them. And by the way, that's fully deployed. They can help us, but the big dollars come from the trillions of dollars on our balance sheet to lend. The, you know, our expense base, our $60 billion expense base, we aim it a little differently, it changes the course of history. That's where the real money is going to come from. So they can help create the conditions for the yeah, private sector exactly. to step in yeah. and power the transition. Okay. We're not replacing governments. What we're doing is a practical thing. Lee, it's a convincing argument. The trillions of dollars needed are not going to come from anywhere else. But is there a trade-off in having financial institutions like Bank of America so heavily influencing the process of transition? Well, 
certainly there are opportunities at, at hand for the for the banking system, but you know banks are already arguably receiving more political attention than they ever have before. As their influence increases, will this bring on more regulations, such as maybe concentration limits in certain you know segments of, of, of ESG or environment um, from from an investment standpoint? Or could it bring on more political scrutiny, which could ultimately impact the efficiency of just the funding mechanism itself? While we're on the topic of politics, how are the banks navigating a more polarized political landscape? Has there been an influence there? I mean, they've already seen a higher level of regulation over the last 10 years. Um, Large banks have the resources to deal with this. But obviously, the more scrutiny, the more regulation you have, the more you could change the environment for better or for worse. Um, We've already discussed sort of the element of of private capital, which um, may have a certain efficiency, but um, could also, you know, bring on sort of less regulated capital into the environment. Rosanna, the banks are stuck between a rock and a hard place. But what about the borrowers and the choices that they face? Uh, I think you always have the choice, but you have to um, then to take on uh, the the consequences and then go with it. You know, I always uh, uh, be mindful it was the Texas government said, well, uh, companies that uh, are implementing certain ESG restriction will not access our very deep uh, municipality bond market. Of course, you know, that's a source of, uh, of business for, for the banks. Well, at the end, uh, it costs the municipality much higher borrowing cost. So uh, yes, you, you have the choice, but you have to uh, then bear, bear the consequence. Um, there is one thing in terms of uh, of of the choice that the banks like Bank of America are are, are making uh, you know the point of uh, capitalism at, at work uh, yes i quite agree the government don't have the money um to really drive all this investment and so you have to bring a private uh, private capital into it. But the government have an, a very important role, uh, and you summarize very nicely, in giving the, the framework. The roadmap is very long. The time scale is very long. They need to set the, the rules and make it clear what are the, the rules of the game. Because uh, private capital will not commit capital on a five, a 10 years view if the rules are not uh, well written, and above all, that the government uh, commit the self in following, in following these rules. This has been a very interesting discussion on transition risk. Um, but I did ask Mr. Moynihan about the trade-offs related to the physical risks of climate change uh, that the bank might have on its books. What about the physical risks that Bank of America faces when looking to finance businesses in regions where maybe climate change is having a big or an accelerated impact? The problem is in short term, it just it's it's not that it's not that material risk and so the feedback our industry gives in the people want to incorporate this in stress test it's nine quarters there's nothing that's going to happen in nine quarters that's going to make that much a difference in the general climate risk or you know or sea level rise in nine quarters you know is it really going to change the course of history and a storm's going to come even if we got this all right the storms would still come and so i think we've got to be careful about overstating that over a long period of time yes but what you'll do is start managing portfolios, which credit will become unavailable in those communities over time. Insurance will become unavailable over time because people just won't do it anymore. But if you only use economics as, a, as the driver to say, you know, 
that property on the uh, on the shorefront in a coastal area that could get hit by a hurricane or be subject to some flooding, you'll be a lot of years away from changing it. If you want to not have it built, you have to just say you can't build there. If you want to not have it insured, you can say nobody can insure it. But you know, there'll still be people who have their own money, don't care about insurance, do it. But that'll start to limit the number of people. It's a long-term risk, of which you. you you can talk about, but you're not, that's not going to cause you to change. What you really want to cause the just transition to take place is we're going to not have that risk ever come up. And here's how we're going to, you know, people are going to do it. And let's get people energized and making a transition so we avoid someday making that binary decision of I'm not going to lend or I'm not going to operate or I'm not going to do this. But I want to get to this time horizon question yeah, that yeah. seems kind of existential because at some point 2050 will be now. Yeah. And so how do you, you know, leading such a large business reconcile what's happening today, the near-term risks, and then again, those existential longer-term. So what's the time frame? It's tomorrow and then, and then, and then next, the week, the month, the quarter. It, you, have to, you can't sit there and say, this is long-term, this is short-term. It has to be a blended thought process. I have a view of where we got to get. We make progress every day. That progress has to add up to get to where we have to go. Um, but you know, we don't do things that lose a lot of money near-term, say, oh, yeah, someday it'll work out in the company at all. But on the other hand, you got to be constantly investing for where we go. Lee, how have you observed Bank of America incorporating this time horizon question into their risk management process? Well, you certainly see it in their disclosure, which has become enhanced over the years, um, whether it's through their TCFD reports or, you know, finding its way into um, annual reports. You know, I think he's making the point it's not just a binary fund, don't fund type of decision. But if you're going to finance that deep water oil platform or a coastal real estate development, those elements, the climate elements have to show up in risk management today for these in particular for these longer term projects. Rosanna, what about the opportunities here? There are plenty, you know, like Lee was saying, at the end, it goes down to uh, to the risk management. So if you think about it, it's like giving them uh, a new tools uh, that will allow them to have, um, make a better informed decision. So there could be opportunity for them. And I see, I see a lot being able to price correctly, maybe go towards a client that, uh, you know, has seen... Uh, uh, other banks shut it down completely because uh, they take this binary decision. Why Bank of America stepping in and say, "Well, I can price it correctly uh, because uh, I can take a better informed decision." So there could be business opportunity for uh, for Bank of America in terms of taking share or become the leader uh, not only in the pricing correctly uh, of certain uh, loans or line of credit or project uh, project financing. If you think about the history of Bank of America, this was uh, coming out from the Bank of Italy of San Francisco, and they really flourished after uh, the San Francisco earthquake in 1906, where uh, the bank, uh, Amadeo Pietro Giannini, went door to door, knocking the door and saying, I can lend you money, despite uh, all these uh, tragic events that, uh, that we are living, living through. So there are always business opportunities if you are able to, to make a better informed decision. And the bank now has better tools to be able to do that. Of course, that. of course. Let's go to our final clip. This is on the topic of reputation. Your business is complex and it faces reputational risks. And I wonder if that impacts your strategy. And the views on sustainability, quote unquote, are rapidly evolving. And to what extent does the court of public opinion inform the decision making? 
um, we really don't use public opinion. We have a, a, a group in the company uh, that we call the Responsible Growth Committee, and they make the decisions about policies, uh, policies of whether it was uh, policy of firearms or policies about you know these types of things, which get into what people would call more social issues. But uh, we made our decision about the type of firearms that deliver multiple rounds in, in short periods of time. Because it, going back to like the Charleston shooting, we had four of nine people in there. We had the teammate that got killed in the, in the Las Vegas shooting in the United States. In, in the Pulse nightclub, we had four teammates who were in there all night long. Luckily, they all got out. Uh, but other ones lost relatives. It was a few blocks from our branch. And so we built that decision about a very narrow question because our teammates came and said, oh, can we do something about this? And so our teammates are 200 plus thousand people. They have 600,000 family members. We have 60 million customers. So we take into account all that. Lee, those numbers cited by Mr. Moynihan, it is an enormous social footprint that Bank of America has. And I guess he's making the case in some ways that um, the bank is hardwired into the pulse of the nation. In fact, he spoke earlier about the company being a reflection of society. Is there a trade-off here, though, with being that intertwined in the economy and so many communities? You know, I, I think one of the things he's getting at is they're getting pulled in a lot of different directions. And not everybody sees things the same way, which, you know, can can produce a lot of conflicts. Um, you know, a company philosophy or a driving purpose that Bank of America has has communicated you know, kind of keeps everyone moving in the same direction. Rosanna, it does come back to politics again, though, doesn't it? I mean, for example, making a stand on gun control is no small thing in a country like the United States. No, it isn't. And uh, well done to Bank of America to stand uh, on on that thing. So because, uh, uh, you know, they're practically facing themselves to be accused uh, to be against the Second Amendment that is uh, so so close to the heart of a lot of a lot of Americans, but I think he's making is making a good a good point. I mean, being being a bank uh, like a Bank of America is active in in fifty states. Um, yes, it's the United States of America, but there are little nuances uh, uh, state by by state. You know, on on gun control, you have different stances that has been taken by Texas uh, versus what has been. Uh, uh, taken by Connecticut and your Bank of America, you need to be able to make uh, to make business uh, in all in all those country. Um, I think the point is that not listen to to the public opinion, but really listen to what uh, your people want and what the customer wants. And in the end, it's a matter of uh, uh, you know deal with politics, uh, sit down and understand what they really mean, uh, what they really want the bank to bank to do in in the states because. Uh, a bank like Bank of America cannot afford or not to do business in a state as, as big as Texas. I think this debate really illustrates that sustainability touches every aspect of Bank of America's business, from its employees, to the communities in which it operates, to the many clients it services, a giant financial institution facing enormous decisions. Listen to my full interview with Brian Moynihan on the Fidelity Answers podcast feed, or check the show notes for a link. Thank you to my guests, Rosanna Bercheri and Lee Sotos. The producer was Seb Morton-Clark with technical support from Connor Bailey and Callum Blitz. The editor is Richard Edgar. From all of us at Fidelity, goodbye. Goodbye.
This podcast is for investment professionals only and should not be relied upon by private investors. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is intended only for the person or entities to which it is sent. It must not be reproduced or circulated to any other party without the prior permission of Fidelity. The value of investments can go down as well as up, so you may get back less than you invest. For other important legal notices, please visit your local Fidelity website.